Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just ask that you would do an incredible work, continue to work in our hearts. We trust you. We know when we do, you act. So there are needs in this congregation. There are needs in our hearts and minds. There are emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, mentally, mental health needs, and we ask that you would meet them. There are financial needs. Meet them. There are concerns. Meet those concerns. Do works for us and in us and to us that show us how trusted you should be and help us to learn and grow in that trust. So we pray that your spirit would work here this morning. Your, your word says that your word works. So simply use me to communicate what it says and prepare hearts and minds to receive these truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's something interesting that happened in, in, in Colossians chapter 2. So in verses 6, 7, and 8. We we're in verses 6, 7, and 8 of Colossians 2. And while we were in those verses, there was a lot of hard things in there. A lot of hard things. Like, obey. And then the next verse was like, obey. And then the next verse was like, obey. So verse actually 5, 6, 7, and 8. There was a lot of sanctification going on. If you, we'll go through those texts quickly, and I can show you where all that sanctification is just coming from. And, and so what happened is as a congregation, there were uh, some of us who kind of felt like that, that was just really heavy, and it was a lot, and it, was, and it almost seemed a little strict. And so what happened then is last week, I sat down here on a chair. If you weren't here last week, sat here on a chair, and we'd, I didn't preach a sermon well, kind of was, and I just talked to you, right, about the heaviness of those verses and how there should be grace that tempers that. And so I, I look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, and I say, it is heavy. And, I, and, and it's that, that heaviness, that weight, that almost strictness is supposed to be there. It's intended to be there. It has to be there. And then I looked at the congregation and felt that, that like, uh, the weight of it, and, and I, I could feel your tension with it. The tension exists on purpose. And so then I dealt with the tension last week. And what I realized this week, and, and I knew what verses 9 and 10 were about, but what I realized this week is I kind of felt like God showed me in my prayer time that he's like, Mark, 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 Mark. Yes, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 were a lot of tension, a lot of sanctification, a lot of strict reality about the Christian life. And then you, Mark, jumped ahead of me. And you had a nice little talk with the congregation, and I love your heart for your people, Mark. <laughs> but I actually had an answer. I designed the text that way. I had verses 6, 7, and 8 were supposed to feel as tense as it felt. Because I was, I was preparing those people for verses 9 and 10. So I think about it like a, like a, like a um, like whitewater rafting. Okay, like we get in the raft and God's like, all right, you're going to see a waterfall up ahead. You'll be safe, trust me. And we're like, okay, and we get in the waterfall, and we get in the white water, and we get in the uh, raft, and we're going along these rapids, and it's crazy, and it's, it's dangerous, and there's rocks, and there's, we're flying all over the place, and those are, that's verses 6, 7, and 8, and we're like, oh, this is getting really hard, and God's like, remember, trust me, you'll be okay, and then we see ahead the waterfall, and we can't see what's on the other side of the waterfall, and we kind of panic, I kind of panicked, we all kind of panicked a little bit, and... Before we got to the edge of the waterfall, we're like, okay, 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 I can't do it. And we call for rescue. And God's like, I got you. And when you call God for rescue, what does he do? He rescues you. Even if you don't really need it, he'll do it just to show you he's there. And he comes and he rescues us before we hit the waterfall. And our, and our raft keeps going. And then we're safe on the shore. 
And we're like, oh, God, I'm so glad you saved me from verses 6, 7, and 8. They were so heavy and it was too much and it was so strict and there was so much about obedience and it was just so hard to, to live in those rapids. And he goes, yeah, but if you'd have just waited one more week, you would have got to verses 9 and 10 and I'll show you what they look like. And we look, we walk down the, the, the shore and we look on the other side of the waterfall. It's just a two-foot drop. We would have been just fine and safe. We would have just eased right over that drop. And on the other side of that drop, of that waterfall, is just calm and patient and steady waters. No rapids, no rocks, no danger. And so I look at this text and I think, this text is really the answer to the weightiness of the commands to obey God. Because when we preach to you how significant and important it is to obey God, it, 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 becomes, it can become overwhelming. And God's like, I know it can become overwhelming. That's why I write, the, that's why I had the Bible written the way I wanted it written. And that's why verses 9 and 10 exist. So we're going to look at those verses. And let's start with verse 9. And Paul says, or not, yeah, yeah Paul says, for in him, that's Christ, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So why does Paul tell us that Jesus, the human, is also Jesus, the God, fully Jesus, the God? He already told us back in chapter 1, verse 19, where he said, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we already know that. Why, why bring it back? Why bring it up again? Because this time, this time, the fullness of the deity of Christ is expressed as the foundation for another truth. So think about it like this. Verse 9 is the foundation for verse 10. But to understand verse 10 and to understand why verse 9 is verse 10's foundation, we have to look back at verses 6 and 8 to see how Paul builds his argument. And so... What we find when we do that is it creates in verse 10 this incredible balance in the gospel that makes living a gospel-centered and Christ-centered life possible, and not only possible, but enjoyable and encouraging. It's a beautiful reality. It's just like the balance that Christian just showed us in Hebrews chapter 10, that there's this warning passage in 26 through uh, 31, and, and then you get this weighty, like, oh, I, who could bear such a weight of such a, an incredible God and the recognition of my sin is too much? And then verse 32, but remember your salvation. You're not left in that warning. And so we got, we got to look at these verses 6, 7, 8 to kind of see the weight so we can feel the relief in verses 9 and 10. In verse 6, Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We find in this verse that there are two elements of our salvation. There is justification and there is sanctification. Receiving Christ Jesus the Lord, that's our justification. It's a reference to us getting saved. Walk in him is our sanctification. It's a reference to our daily Christian living. It's a command to us. Walk is a command. Right? It's a verb, to walk, and it's commanded to us. It's an imperative. So walk in him is a command to us that we walk or live according to the commands in the Bible. So essentially, verse 6 is telling us, since you have been saved, live obediently. And then verse 7 says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. Rooted, that, that is the initial planting. So it's also a reference to our justification. Built up in him is our continued work of building up this Christian life or building Christ-likeness in you. So like, what makes Christ different from everyone else? What sets him apart? Holiness, right? And what is holiness? Holiness is expressed in perfect obedience. Jesus is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, which means, and because he is perfectly obedient. So perfect obedience is what makes Christ different. And since we are not yet perfect, this process in our life of becoming perfect or becoming more and more like Christ 
requires our efforts to pursue obedience. So built up, that word, that phrase built up, is a reference to our sanctification, to our continued obedience, to our pursuit of righteousness. So we got rooted, that's justification. We got built up, that's sanctification. And then we have established in the faith. And that is about who we are in Christ. By our faith in Christ, we become something different. Even when we are not perfect, even when we fail to obey, even when we sin, we are something different. Obedience produces a more established life of faith, yes, but there's a great encouragement for believers that even in the absence of obedience, we have already been rooted in him. So we can now know that we are also, even in disobedience, established in the faith. Even in our failure to be perfect, we're still established in the faith. That's, what, that's, that's the heartbeat that Paul is going to get to in these later verses. So established in the faith refers to our glorification, the sense that there's an established reality about your faith that is unchangeable. And our glorification is God's promise that at the return of Christ we will be wholly, fully, and completely glorified with new bodies and a perfected soul and spirit. So in those verses, verses 6 and 7, we see these three realities, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And those three words can be summarized into one word. And that one word is salvation. Justification is this one-time act where God declares your sins forgiven and gives you the righteousness of Jesus. That's that's what happens when we say, I'm saved, or what was the day you believed in Jesus, or what, you know, tell me your testimony. We tell that story about the day we got saved. That's That's the day you were justified. Sanctification is a lifelong process of learning obedience and learning how to be righteous like Jesus by using his righteousness to do so. So sanctification is spiritual growth. And then glorification is the guaranteed promise and it's the result of justification and sanctification throughout our life. Glorification is our reward. We get perfected later so we can dwell eternally with God in his perfect presence full of never-ending joy and pleasure. So that's salvation. It includes three elements at least justified, sanctified, glorified. Today and for the rest of this life, you're living in the sanctification zone, the spiritual growth zone. And in that zone, there are repeated commands over and over to obey and obey and obey and learn and grow and desire and strive and seek and, and, and believe in all these commands and things that we're supposed to do. Like if I said to you, be encouraged, that's a command. You're commanded to feel encouraged. If I said, be happy Christians, wouldn't you be like, that was a very encouraging truth. Thank you, Pastor Mark. I'd be like, great, because that's a command. You have to do it. <laughs> like, like, we don't often think of commands as like the heavy, weighty stuff, like, you know, read your Bible more, do this more, do that more, go to church, and, and it's kind of the, the strictness, but there's also a strictness to the pleasures and the joys and the encouragements being satisfied in Christ, being happy in your marriage, that's a command. Enjoying your spouse is a command. Enjoying your children is a command. Doing your job at work and doing it well should be something you enjoy and it's something we're commanded to do. 1 Corinthians 7, everyone should live the life that he's been called to live. Whatever your God job, whatever job God gave you or called you to, do it well and do it with joy. Like there's a lot of commands that are just actually about you being happy and being encouraged, right? And so there's great encouragement for the believer in this idea of salvation, this justification, this sanctification, and this glorification. There's a great, great encouragement that God not only does the justifying, which you joyfully receive, but that he also does the sanctifying, which you joyfully endure. And through all of that, he gives us this eternal promise of future glorification 
in which we are to have joyful hope. In all the processes of your salvation, in your justification, there should be a great joy that God has called you, elected you, saved you, redeemed you, restored you, regenerated you, and taken you from hell, which we deserve, and placed us in his arms and in his eternal life. That should bring us joy. We should receive that with joy. And then in the sanctification process, yes, endurance is hard. Yes, living the Christian life is hard. Yes, there are things about it that are very hard. There are also things about it that aren't hard, right? That aren't difficult, that are easy and enjoyable. That's fine too. Whether it's hard or whether it's easy, it should all be joy. It should all be covered and, and clothed in joy. And we should endure with joy and then we also have this final joy of looking forward to our eternal hope and remember in the bible the word hope is not wish like the way we use it right like i hope the bucks win game seven today i don't know if they will but i hope do i know no i don't know do i wish they would i do do i kind of wish they'd lose so i could just kind of not care about the nba playoffs a little bit but I also really want them to win. So I've got this wish. That's my hope. Well, the biblical, the, when the Bible talks about hope, the reality is that the, the thing you're looking forward to is already guaranteed. So the hope you have in it is also guaranteed. And so that's the beauty of glorification, of our future hope. And if that's a reality for you, how could that not make you happy? Even if life is as terrible as you can possibly imagine, how could that not make you happy? And let's be honest, if we compared our Christian lives to some of the lives of like, you know, have you ever read like Fox's Book of Martyrs? Like read those stories, right? And then it really gives you a fresh perspective on your Christian life. And I know that that's like not a fair comparison because we live in a free country and we have a very easy and really rather comfortable reality and that's okay. God has blessed us with that. You are free to enjoy these freedoms. We're not persecuted for our faith. But then you read about these believers throughout history who have been murdered and killed in terrible and gruesome ways for their faith in Christ. And it puts a fresh perspective on your own life and helps you kind of realize like, you know, when my boss gets a little upset with me, it's probably not worth the massive degree of anxiety that I go through. When things don't go my way, when I don't have quite enough money to pay that bill and I got to kind of, you know, finagle some finances, yeah, that's rough, but man, it's better than being burned at a stake, right? A <laughs> little easier. I'd rather be broke than murdered. So, like, I'm not saying that your hardships aren't real or that you shouldn't feel them. I'm just saying a little perspective helps so when we get that perspective, it's it helps us kind of look at our future glorification and it kind of fills me with joy. It's like now, no matter what I face in life, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, I have this eternal hope that it gives me great joy. This is the worst it will ever be for me. This is, the, this is, this is my hell. And so my hope keeps me going. And then all of that that justification, sanctification, and glorification is summarized in this one word, salvation. And in that, Paul ends verse 7 by saying that this salvation should produce one specific thought and feeling in you. Thanksgiving. There's one primary appropriate response to God justifying you by grace and through faith and then sanctifying you through obedience and repentance, and then guaranteeing your future glorification in perfect righteousness. And that one primary response is joy. We ought to be the happiest people in the world. Even in the worst things imaginable, we ought to be the happiest people in the world. Our salvation ought to make us feel so secure 
that we know that no matter how hard our life is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what we go through, even the hardship of enduring obedience and pursuing obedience and then failing at it and then feeling like failures and then wearing shame and guilt and then being told that that's not good enough and you've got to be strong enough and you've got to pick it up and you've got to keep going and you've got to endure and you've got to fight, being told those things and then even doing those things and those things are hard through all of that. We ought to be consumed with joy. Because even if that's hard, we know that the finish line is Christ. And we know what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 or chapter 1, that to die is gain. Yeah, this, to, to live in this life means I get more Christ, more time with Christ, to live as Christ. But to die is gain, which means this life could be hard and painful and exhausting and I have to endure and it can be, the sanctification process can be really arduous. And mixed into the hardships are all these wonderful blessings and beautiful moments and great things and joy and happiness and, and encouragements and whatever. But either one, either way, we, we are to be people who are consumed with joy. Meaning that regardless of how difficult your life may be, knowing that our salvation is secure and knowing that the difficulty we are facing in life is part of God's sanctifying process for our good means that no matter what we face, we can give thanks to God. Which is why 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So just think about that for a second. In what circumstances are we, should we not give thanks? None, right? None, which means every circumstance, okay? So if like a four-year-old runs up to you full speed and gives you like one of the hardest like steel tip boots, he's wearing cowboy boots with steel tips and kicks you right in the shin, your response should be, thank you, Lord. I mean, you probably go, ow, first, right? Ow! Okay, thank you, Lord. But that's the reality. Now, I'm being a little facetious, but the reality of this text is that there is no circumstance in which you shouldn't be thankful. And yes, if a child kicks you in the shin and it hurts really bad, you are to be thankful, literally. Like, what are you doing in my life, God, that you felt I needed to be kicked in the shin by a kid? Something... Something, you're getting my attention somehow. Thank you for whatever you're doing, even if I don't see it. No matter what circumstance we're in, we are given this command to give thanks. And so there are a lot of commands in the Bible, and all of them are the will of God, right? Wouldn't we all agree? That God, when he gives you command, that is his will for your life. That is his will of desire. His desire for you, his will for you, is to do that command. So you look back at verse 6. Walk in him. That's a command. Is that God's will for your life? Absolutely, because it's a command. He wants you to walk in him. So when God gives us another command, like 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, give thanks in all circumstances, he could just stop there. And we would all agree that this is God's will for your life because it's a command. He wants you to do it. This is his will of desire. So for God to take an extra step and notify us all. Um, and just in case you forget, remember, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We already know it's his will. It's a command. So to warn us and remind us and encourage us with this reality that giving thanks in all circumstances is God's will in Christ for you adds to the weight and the significance of this reality, of this truth, of this important command that we should be thankful for everything. 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 I mean, apply that to your life. Apply that to your life. Really, everything. It doesn't mean you should like evil. It doesn't mean you should be thankful for sin. We shouldn't be grateful or thankful for evil and sin, but we can be thankful and grateful to God who does two things. Number one, causes all things for the purpose of, of his eternal perfect glory, and two, has conquered evil and sin in Christ Jesus. 
There's always something to be thankful for. And so, no matter what we go through, you got no money? Thank you, God. Burdened at work? Thank you, God. Stressed about things? Thank you, God. Hardships? Thank you, God. Pain? Thank you, God. Suffering? Thank you, God. Just like the apostles in Acts chapter 5 who were beaten for preaching the gospel and their response to being beaten was, thank you, God. Thank you that we were considered worthy to be beaten for your name. No matter what circumstances we face, we can give God thanks because he's doing two things. One, he is sanctifying you to become more like Christ so that you can enjoy him more. And number two, no matter what circumstance, we know that he has promised us that his glory will be ours and our future glorification is secure. And that is the mindset. That is the mind of Christ that we use when we get into verse Eight, which says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we need that sanctification. We need that mind of Christ that comes through the hard things, through the endurance, through the, through the teaching, through the pushing, through the enduring, through the fighting for your faith, through all the hardship of sanctification, through all the arduous work that it takes to grow and mature and be like Christ. We need it so we can endure through such and repel and reject such heresies and lies and deceptions from the enemy and from the world. And we need our assurance and our confidence of our future hope of eternal glorification to give us that strength to endure life that is surrounded by the enemy and deception and temptation. So bearing that mind of Christ, we get to verse 9, where Paul lays a foundation. And here's the foundation. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is who Christ is. Fully God. Meaning he is fully capable of understanding the gospel and its effects on life. And Jesus is fully capable to give thanks to God even in the worst situations. Which we saw when he was in the garden praying and said, I don't want this, but not my will, but your will be done. And he's grateful to God that his will is done. Jesus is fully capable of enduring life while surrounded and attacked by worldly people and while being tempted by sin and by Satan. That, his ability to endure all of that, is why he is the foundation. Jesus is the foundation. Now, if we looked at like Ephesians 2, uh, 19 through 22, we actually see that Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation and we are the building that is built on the foundation. And the cornerstone is even more significant than the rest of the foundation because the cornerstone sets the parameters for the rest of the foundation. That's like building foundations 101. Right, And so Christ is like the pace setter in like a race. And so he is the ultimate foundation upon which the church is built. His mind, his thoughts, his perception, his knowledge, his grace, his understanding, his trust in the Father, his desire to do the Father's will, his ability to obey the Father's will, and his strength and endurance to, res endurance to resist evil and sin. That is who he is. That is who he is. That's incredible. A powerful, magnificent, amazing God, fully God, fully capable of understanding all realities and all things that are pertinent to living a godly life and then in his humanity lives out that perfect life. That is, he is the greatest example of humanity imaginable or possible. He is incredibly glorious. He's incredibly wise and strong and powerful 
and gentle and patient and kind and loving and enduring and strong enough to resist temptation and secure enough to stand in front of Pilate and go, I don't have to give you an answer. Go ahead, kill me. I know where I'm going. I, God knows who I am. I don't need to appease humanity. I need to please my God. And he is the only one who appeases God's wrath because he dies for our sins and rises from the grave. What an incredible human being. What an incredible God who becomes a human being. And he's got the power of the Holy Spirit working in him and operating in him and giving him wisdom and perception and, and, and discernment to know how the enemy is attacking and knowledge of the word of God to resist the enemy and to, and to fight back against temptation, to destroy the strongholds that are trying to be built up around him. And we've got strongholds built up inside of us. We let the enemy in the gates and he has built a fort inside of our gates. And he is destroying us from the inside out. Jesus never let that happen. He is incredible. His wisdom is beyond your comprehension. There are scriptures that talk about Jesus just standing there and then all of a sudden someone says something and the scriptures say, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, like he just peers into their mind and goes, I know exactly what you're thinking. That's not because he's God. That's because the Holy Spirit made him aware because Jesus' discernment is so 100% holy, perfect, righteous, and, and like pinpoint accurate that through the power of the Holy Spirit in his humanity perceived their thoughts. He is the foundation upon which verse 10 is built. He's a pretty amazing God, wouldn't you say? And look at what verse 10 says. And you have been filled in him. That, that verse, those words, that is the gentle stream on the other side of the waterfall. What an amazing encouragement that this Jesus, full of deity, full of grace, full of goodness, truth, knowledge, wisdom, discernment, power, strength, righteousness, justice, discernment. His love for the Father is greater than the love you, any love you've ever experienced for God the Father. It was perfect. And that Jesus fills you. That is why he is the foundation. He is the foundation by which you can endure your sanctification because he endured so you can endure. He is the foundation by which you can hope in future eternal glory. He is the foundation by which you can resist evil and sin and he is the foundation by which you can endure temptation. He is the foundation. We are the building, the church that is built upon him. This is a great encouragement because it's a reminder that though throughout verses 6 and 8, six, verses 6 through 8, we are commanded to live obediently, so to express the righteousness of Christ. That's a hard, and it gets heavy, and those are d tough truths, and that makes life really difficult. And that we are to confirm our calling and election, and we are to prove our justification through our sanctification. That though those difficult realities exist, we are assured that all that which dwells in Christ and all that Christ had so to live a perfectly righteous life is also in you. You are not left to be sanctified alone. Not only do you have a community called the church that encourages you and rebukes you and repro reproves you and corrects you and exhorts you and encourages you and pushes you and comforts you and gives you peace and prays with you and prays for you and teaches you and loves you and is gentle to you and shows you grace and sometimes shows you hard things. Though that exists in the church, the community that is a church, it, is, it exists even more so in Christ in you. Jesus made a promise to the church that he would send a helper, and he did. 
the Holy Spirit. If you want to learn more about this reality, come to Men's Bible Study on Friday morning. We just started the book of Acts. We're just about to get to the parts where Jesus is like, here comes the Holy Spirit. So it's really fun. It's a really cool, it's a historical landmine. And I, say, I don't say landmark, I say landmine because it should blow your mind. It's incredible to see how the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene. And when he does, he has one job. The Holy Spirit comes to believers with one job, to magnify Jesus Christ. Period. That's his role. To exalt Christ. To glorify Jesus. Because as Jesus is glorified, the Father is glorified. And so... His job is to magnify Jesus, and the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus by magnifying Jesus in you. And he does that by leading us, guiding us, sanctifying us, giving us hope, filling us with joy, and assuring our future glory in his eternal presence. Meaning, all that you need... Everything that you need to live this life in obedience, everything you need to live in perfect, or I'm sorry, in pursuit of righteousness, in, to, to live in undefeatable joy. Do you have undefeatable joy? I don't think we do. I don't. You know, I know why? Because I stand at the pulpit on Sundays and I'm like, woo, gospel. I get to preach. I'm so jacked up about Jesus. And I got this truth I've been studying all week. And I come here and I tell you guys about it. And I get all fired up and I preach and preach and preach and preach. And then after church and Sunday afternoon, I'm just like, man, it was such a dumb sermon. I'm such a bad preacher. My wife's like, shut up. <laughs> get over yourself. Right? Because I go from joy, 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 and then once I've given all my joy, I just crash and I run out of joy. And I was actually talking with Lon about it this week because Lon and I serve up here on Sunday mornings. We give on Sundays. And on Sundays, you're receiving what we're giving. Okay? You guys give at other times. Like if you're serving on Wednesday nights, on Wednesday nights you're giving. Okay? So after you're done giving, pouring out the Spirit, you get tired. Right? And you're exhausted and you need to be filled back up. But then, because I'm living in the flesh, because I poured out all the spirit I had in me at the pulpit, by Sunday afternoon, I've got no spirit in me, in the sense that like, I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, the spirit still resides in me. But I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit, as Paul commands us to be in Ephesians. And so then I'm like operating in my flesh. And I go, you know what I need? I need the word and prayer. I need those two things to fill me back up. But I'm in the flesh. So there's enough of the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ in me to go, I, I know that's what I need, but my flesh is saying, Mark, that's more work. You need to rest. You don't need the word and prayer. You just to go lay down and take a nap. That's what you need. Because the flesh, what does the flesh want? Sleep? <laughs> what does the spirit want? God? Right? And so even, even getting refreshed, my, my flesh is convincing me, you don't need that. Because I let joy get defeated in my flesh. And I lose joy. And then I'm crabby. And I'm disappointed in myself. And I'm, it's, just, it's all self, self-focused, self-centered. You know? And I'm like, oh, I just give these people all of myself. And, you know, whatever. And I just get, become a whiny baby because I'm just spent. And I lose all that joy. I, I don't always have undefeatable joy. But in Christ, Christ has undefeatable joy. None of us could have endured what Christ endured. For the joy that was set before him, what did he do? What do, you, do you know this verse? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he what? Endured the cross. None of us could have endured that cross. Not with the weight of the world's sin on your shoulder, and we could not have. What empowered Christ to endure? Joy. He looked on the other side of the, the suffering, and he goes, oh, 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 man, do you see what's on the other side? What's on the other side? Because then Hebrews 12, 3 then goes on to say, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. So like, Jesus looks through the suffering of the cross and, with, and what he sees on the other side is something that gives him 
insurmountable joy, undefeatable joy. He sees the presence of God the Father, which Psalm 1611 says there is eternal joy and never-ending pleasure. He sees that eternal joy and that never-ending pleasure, and he goes, that is the greatest thing anyone could ever desire, the presence of God my Father. I will endure this cross because that joy is so sweet. Do we live in undefeatable joy? Because Christ did and Christ has undefeatable joy and Christ is in you. You have undefeatable joy. You have it. It's yours. It's all yours. It is all yours. So why don't we live like it? Why don't we use it? Why don't we have it? The real issue with not having it, the real reason we don't have it, is because we don't spend enough time in the Word. Or we don't spend enough time in prayer. Or we don't spend enough time in community. Or we don't spend enough time doing the things that actually strengthen us and encourage us. I think that's part of the problem. I think part of it is not just the amount of time we spend growing, because as we spend time in the Word and we grow... We're going to become more and more satisfied in him, and we're going to have this joy that just begins to defeat the hardships. So that's what we get in the word, and that's what we'll get in prayer. But there's so many other things going on too. Like we're being tempted by sin, and we're losing those battles. How do we, how do we win those battles against temptation? Well, what did Jesus do when he was tempted? How did Jesus defeat temptation? He used the word. That was it. He ran to the word of God. And he responded to temptation with the word. He says, for the Lord says, for God says, for the word says, and he, re- and he would repeat scripture to the temptation. There's a temptation to sin in your face. You've got to have a scripture for it. You've got to have a scripture for it. You've got to have a scripture for it, guys. You've got to know the word. You have to know the word so that when temptation comes, you defeat that temptation with scripture. And I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you the best one, I think. I think it's the best one because it's an all-encompassing, totally encapsulating truth that you can always repeat in the face of any temptation. It will always work. Because being tempted by sin begins where? Right here in your mind, right? Before we ever do anything sinful, we thought about it and we decided to do it or say it or think it or hear it. So it starts right here in your mind. And we have the mind of Christ. And what Scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, is take every thought captive to obey Christ. So if you don't have a verse for a particular temptation and you're not sure what what verse to throw at that temptation to defeat it, to live in that joy, that undefeatable joy, to express that undefeatable joy with with the reality of God's word, then you always, you can always lean into or lean back or fall back on that one kind of all-encapsulating reality and just say to that temptation, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Remind yourself of that command. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted by lust. There's lust in, in, in front of me and, and I, I, I want to I keep looking at it and it's to draw me this way and I have to go take every thought captive to obey Christ. I take that lust and I lock it away. I don't have to lock it away. I just need to tell it to go back where it came from. The grave where it was killed and buried. Or I have this love for, for money and, and oh, I'm just tempted to like buy things and have things and save money and, and develop wealth so that I can feel secure. And God's like, I'm your security. Take that thought captive and put it back in the grave where it belongs. That's always a go-to verse. And the only reason you can do that is because Christ is in you. So... We have the power of Jesus Christ operating in us. You lack nothing to live a godly life. You have the Holy Spirit who dwells in you and whom Paul says in Galatians 2.20 is Christ in you. So you lack nothing to live a godly life. And because of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his grace and his gift of faith, you lack nothing to live eternally. And therefore you lack, therefore you never lack hope all of that 
serves your ability to endure sanctification and to endure this life with joy and hope. That's the promise. So all that, all that preaching and teaching from Paul and those earlier verses are like, walk in him, obey, endure, be sanctified, sanctified, sanctified. That's the message. Salvation is the message. Verses really 5 through 8 is, is salvation. And, and a huge piece of salvation that he hits on in those verses is be sanctified, be sanctified, be sanctified. Obey, obey, obey. Because remember, sanctification is obedience. And with all the weightiness and heaviness of that, Paul wraps it all up with this verses 9 and 10 to show us that Christ is the foundation who is fully God and God fully in Christ is now fully in you. He is the means by which you can obey. He is the means by which you can be sanctified. And he is the means by which you still have hope even when you fail. Even when you disobey, even when you're not good, even when you're unrighteous, even when you sin, even when you fail to take every thought captive to obey Christ, instead you believe the lie and you obey the sin. Even when that happens, we're drawn back to scripture and reminded of this, that you have been filled in and then it writes the ship, it, it, it corrects our vision, and it turns our sight to our eternal hope of glory in Jesus Christ. And when our eyes are fixed on him, we get this refreshing outpouring and reminder of who we are in Christ and in the power of Christ that refills us and renews us, we are then capable and able to stand up and go back to work and get back into sanctification and even get rest. The same power that enables Jesus to live perfect resides in you. Now, unlike Jesus, we wrestle in our sinful flesh. That's a big difference, wouldn't you say? Which makes our progress slow at times, right? But that just reveals all the more our need for his power to work in us and work on us, doesn't it? Doesn't the fact that we're sinful flesh, instead of saying, well, he was perfect and I'm not, so it's not fair. Instead, it's like, well, he's perfect and I'm not. All the more reason for me to depend on him and need him. I was reading a book this morning. I just pulled it off my shelf. Really weird. Random book. My wife was sitting there. We're about to do prayer time. I pulled this book off. I don't even remember what it was called. Couldn't even find it again if you asked me to find it. Opened to a random page. Don't know why. Looked at it and it had one statement. All sin finds its root in not being dependent on God. And I was like, that's cool. Close the book, put it back. <laughs> Didn't think I'd use it again. Guess I am. So either way, the point is, what you see there is every time we sin, we're lacking dependence on God. And our need for him that we see in our imperfection just shows us all the more how much we need to depend on him, need to rely on him, need to trust him, need to have faith. And when I say trust him, I mean trust that the things he's telling you to do are worth doing. And that the way to do them is worth doing the way that he tells us to do them. And if you care at all about living a Christ-centered life, a life that expresses and reveals the glory of Christ, then you must also care about your sanctification. You must care about obedience. You must care about righteousness. You must care about holiness. And you must care about glory. And the more you care about those things, the more you will hate sin. Because sin diminishes those things and dims the light of Christ that is meant to shine out of you. So as you grow in appreciation for who Christ is and grow in your desire for obedience and righteousness and holiness, then you will grow in your hatred for sin and your ability to make war with your sin. Because you will see that sin begins to diminish the thing you love to become, which is Christ. But this truth that because Jesus is your foundation and you can live like him, and this truth that because Jesus, because of Jesus, you have his power at work in you, those truths ought to bring to us an indescribable amount of joy and courage. And that joy is your motivator 
that enables you to pursue obedience, righteousness, and holiness. And now, just so we don't get too arrogant, thinking that we're pretty awesome to have the same power in us that the Son of God himself has, Paul reminds us at the end of verse 10 that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. If, if you are so blessed to actually live righteously and holy and obediently, you will be tempted to think too highly of yourself. So even in our righteousness, even in our holiness, even in our obedience, we immediately fall into the temptation for sin again. Because as we become more sanctified and holy and righteous and good and Christ-like, as we get better, we start going, I'm pretty awesome. I live a pretty righteous life. And, and that is pride and sin. And so even in our growth, the temptations just attack us. And we're reminded here at the end of verse 10 that as you grow and are sanctified and as you are reminded of this reality that the fullness of Christ dwells in you to live a holy, righteous life, don't forget, don't forget that he is the rule of all authority. He is the head of all rule and authority. Be reminded that even in our godliness, listen to this, even in our godliness, it is Christ who is ruling and authorizing your godliness. And for that, verse 7, we ought to be thankful. And for that, we ought to be full of joy. And that joy is our strength to endure. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you and we love you. We thank you for this reality that the sanctification process for us is not just something we have to do, but it's something we have to depend on you for. So help us to do that. Help us to rest, rest in your accomplishments so that we can do that which you've done. I love you, Jesus, and we pray you'd be honored and glorified in your people this week. Give us the courage and strength and joy to live a life that honors you. And when we fail, remind us of your grace. And when we fail, show us that undefeatable joy of Christ and draw us back to your word. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.